Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. We dive into the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. As we go through it, we will review previous chapters and discuss how they relate to what the last chapter has to say. Hebrews not only tells us what to do, but gives us examples of how to do it. Our decisions have a massive impact on who we become and what happens to us in the long run. Enduring discipline is not fun, but it brings forth righteousness. Okay, well, we finally made it to Hebrews 13, the last chapter in Hebrews. So let me, uh, let me uh, just remind us kind of what the, the structure of the book is. We've got a better priest, Melchizedek. Melchizedek has a better, uh, he's a better priest with a better sacrifice and a better covenant. Uh, Melchizedek is a priest that uh, has no end of life. He's a priest perpetually. He has a better sacrifice, not one that has to be offered daily or continually, but a sacrifice that's offered once for all. And he's got a better covenant. He's got a covenant that is better than the covenant of the law. The law was perfect, but it was insufficient. It didn't really get the job done. It wasn't the law's fault that it didn't get the job done. It was that it was in the wrong place. In the better covenant, the law is written on our hearts. So we got a better priest with a better sacrifice and a better covenant. And we're invited to live that priestly life. We're invited to enter the true temple in the heavens where the veil is the body of Christ. And we're invited to enter that through that veil and receive the sprinkling, not of blood that has to be done continuously, uh, but of the blood of Jesus that cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can do the works of God. So... We have a better priest with a better sacrifice and a better covenant. And we have a better son because this is the king priest. Jesus is the king priest. And we have a better king who's the son uh, that God said, you know, today I'm your father. Uh, You're my son. You'll be to me a son. I'll be to you a father that... that, uh, uh, granting of royal privilege uh, that Jesus gained because he lived a life of obedience. He did what the Father asked him to. And as such, he paved the way for a better administration and a better world. We're going to see some more about this better world today. So you got a better, better king with a better administration and a better world. And he, his desire is for us to participate with him in that administration because that was actually our original purpose. We saw in Hebrews 2 that man was made to reign the earth in perfect harmony with creation, perfect (coughs) harmony with one another, in perfect harmony with God. And that's not what's happening just now. So we don't see that. What we do see is Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That's what we see. And we see Jesus as a... a, uh, 
as an example and as someone who has paved the way for us and we're asked to follow that. So we see in chapter 12 as we, as we enter towards this uh, chapter 13 just to set up the context we see that um, we're, we're given this admonition for to be a priest like this better priest to live as kings reigning and serving the, each other and serving the earth as Jesus did. And we're given a bunch of examples of what not to do, mostly Israel wandering in the wilderness. And we're given an example what to do. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given these great heroes of faith. And the other main theme of Hebrews is the word mixed with faith. So we've got a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a better covenant. A better king with a better administration and a better world and a word mixed with faith. And we've got this example of all these people who lived by faith. And then we're given the ultimate example in chapter 12. He says, um, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I think, Brandon, didn't you point out that author and finisher is like the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? So he's the writer, and he's the hero of the story, and he's the one that is the culmination of the story, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one we should look at. He's the ultimate example of who to follow. And what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame. In very short order, um, to despise means to give no value to. And shame is that which the world uses to enforce culture. We stand in line at Walmart instead of just walking up and cutting in because you know everyone will shame you if you, don't, if you don't stand in line. That's how we enforce culture. Well, Jesus endured an immense amount of shame And I'm sure it hurt immensely. But compared to what he was really after, he didn't give it much weight. So he endured this cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Why do you sit down at the right hand of the throne of God? Because you are the king. And this reward for his faithfulness is what we are to to seek is a reward for faithfulness, a kingly reward. And that goes to those who serve. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The example is you've got the world uh, crashing in on you, and irrespective, you say, well, this really is difficult, but I'm going to keep my eye on the goal and finish like Jesus finished. Then he talks about the importance of enduring discipline and chastening. It's not fun, but it brings forth righteousness. He tells us that we've got to really uh, use vigor and energy to finish a race like this. Verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. And then in verse 18, he gives us this wonderful contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he says, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched, Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, 
So Mount Sinai is this little pile of rocks on earth. And Mount Zion is this city in heaven. It was scary enough for the people to come to Mount Sinai and get the word, get the law, the covenant, see God, hear His words. Matter of fact, when they heard His words at Mount Sinai, they said, please stop talking, we don't want to die. Just tell Moses and he'll tell us. So they got the word, they got, they got the, the law. But no, he says, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who registered in heaven, the people he wants us to be, the firstborn, the inheritors. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. It's that word we've seen all through here, the, the word that telescope comes from, the word that says that's finished, the completion. The ones that made it. These are the ones up on the, on the stage, the place of honor. To Jesus, the mediator, the priest of the new covenant, the one written in our heart, and the blood of the sprinkling, the better sacrifice, better than even... Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. This is the word mixed with faith, one of the themes of the book. We've got the word, Jesus speaks the word, we hear the word, it's a very bad idea not to heed the word. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, Mount Sinai, the law was given. The law was broken. The people suffered the consequences. How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? See, he's not speaking on earth with a pile of rocks anymore. He's speaking from the heavenly Jerusalem. We don't have a tabernacle that's made out of these pretty cloths and stuff that is in the middle of our little camp anymore. We've got the true tabernacle in heaven where Jesus is mediating as a priest. He's invited us to come in and serve a high priestly function and go into the Holy of Holies. And he's speaking from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. When he spoke from Mount Sinai, it shook the earth. But now he's promised, saying yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of these things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You think he wants us to pay attention here? You kind of get the, the scene Our God is a consuming fire. Well, look at me, look with me if you would to Revelation 21 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first heaven, the place we are now, the heaven and earth we're in now, is not going to be around forever. It's, It's heading away. Look at First Second Peter, uh, Peter chapter three verse five. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God 
the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. God spoke the world into existence, and by His word the world was destroyed in the flood. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So this word that we're supposed to listen to, this word made the world, the word destroyed the world in the time of Noah, and that same world, it word is preserving the world from destruction now. But that same word is going to completely destroy this earth and these heavens and replace it with a brand new one. That's where we're going to live forever, in the new earth. The culmination of human history is when heaven comes to earth and God dwells with us on earth. The things which cannot be shaken may remain... Therefore, we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So which part of our outline does that refer to? A better, a better administration and a better world. That's what we're receiving. And if we overcome, if we endure, if we listen, if we follow the way, same way Jesus is and, and live a life of obedience to the end, then we get this reward of inheriting the kingdom. If we don't, we don't. So we'll be in the new earth because new birth is a gift. It's a gift that God just gives. But this being an inheritor is a reward that's, that's, that's given to those who endure. And the whole book of Hebrews is about living that life so you, we don't lose out on that which matters for all of eternity. What matters for all of eternity is who we become as people and the connections that we have with others and with God. And what God has offered here is this unbelievable opportunity to share in reigning in this kingdom with God. But it comes through serving God. And what fear should we have? Well, we should fear that we don't take advantage of this. Let's look back at um, Hebrews chapter 2. We saw this in the setup of the book. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. This is the, kind of the theme of the book. The children of Israel heard, and they didn't listen. And they didn't get the inheritance. God still took care of them. They were still His children. They got manna in the wilderness, and their clothes didn't wear out. They didn't get to go into the promised land. These great people of faith, Abraham, he saw afar off. And he believed because he said, I'm not a citizen of this world, but there's something better for me. And that's the example we should live. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For this word spoken through angels proves steadfast, this old covenant 
this New Testament, I'm sorry, Old Testament law and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, which is if you disobey me, then you're not going to inherit the blessings. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, a deliverance? And then he goes on to tell us the part of the salvation he has particularly in mind is the world is broken and he wants to put it back together. The word mixed with faith. Our God is a consuming fire. Going back to the sort of the introduction to chapter 13 here. Our God is a consuming fire. What does the term consuming fire kind of bring to mind to you? Destructive. Okay, so forest fire, maybe. You've seen a forest fire raging. What can stop a forest fire? They don't really even try to put those things out. They just try to get out in front of it and, and remove the fuel so it'll, it'll burn itself out. Nothing stops a raging, consuming fire. Maybe the sun. You know, the sun is a consuming fire. If you just think about a fire and a fireplace, if you put wood in a fire... What that consuming fire does is it converts the wood into sort of its base elements. What you have left is ash, carbon, and into the air goes the carbon dioxide and the water that made up this wood, this cellulite fiber. A consuming fire. Let's just look at a couple places this phrase is brought into Hebrews, which you remember these are all Jews that know the Bible here. Let's just look at a couple of passages from Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you begin, this is the Deuteronomy's, the, the, the second giving of the law before they go into the promised land. So this is the instructions to the faithful people that are about to go in and and do what God's asked them to do. He's given them a warning. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land that you're about to go in and possess and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God and provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan and possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And of course, we know this is exactly what happens. Because God is a consuming fire. He judges that which is uh, standing in the way of this restoration of perfect harmony and perfect uh, relationship that he made the world to be. He gives the covenant to the people to live this way. When they don't, they're not doing their function and he eliminates it. Look a few uh, chapters on to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you're to cross over the Jordan today and go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, the giants, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today, the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. God is a consuming fire. 
He causes things to happen that create destruction and eliminate that which is not according to his plan. So, what we should do is serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? There's a new kingdom coming. And our station in that kingdom is completely dependent on what we do now. Our happiness in this world is dependent on what we do now. Our effect in this world is dependent on what we do now. It's all dependent on an obedience. So what do we do? So you, you kind of, I hope you get the point that the, <clears throat> the motivative factor to, to now do this list of things has just culminated. Now, for me, when I first came to understand the book of Hebrews, my knees knocked. I mean, I, I, I did not realize what a big deal this life is and how much impact my decisions had on who I become as a person and what happens to me for the long haul. So the first thing I wanted to do is say, okay, so what do I do? And that's what chapter 13 is about. Now I want to know, well, tell me what to do. And here's, a, and here's some practical lists of things to do. It starts in an interesting way. Let brotherly love continue. I, I, I counted a list of approximately 14 different things he's going to tell us here. And the first one is, let brotherly love continue. Now, what do you think this is? Agape love or phileo love? Agape love, like the perfect love that, that you give in a transactional manner, irrespective of whether you get any benefit, relational benefit from the other person. You just know it's the right thing to do. God will reward you so you act this way anyway. Or do you think this is going to be the uh, affection love? There's a relational component here where... I'm giving love and I expect something in return relationally from this other person. Which would you expect it to be? This is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Philadelphia's phileo. Delphia. Delphi. Delphus. Delphus. Friends. Affection. Brotherly love. And I think what he's saying here is he's been talking to this Hebrew church all, all through this... Um, all this book. And I think the admonition here is get connected. Get ingrained with your team. This is this is a team sport, this whole this whole endeavor here. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. What did Jesus do? He built a team. Look to look to uh, these great heroes of the faith in chapter eleven. They're your witnesses. They're they're part of your team. Get Get your relationships with your team right. Okay, these guys, this is, this is who you're going to be serving in the next kingdom with. You're faithful to the end. Part of the reason is going to be because we locked arms together and we made it together. And ultimately, what we're going to do is share an administration like as a team to make the earth a wonderful place to live. I think arguably the reason why the world's going to be so amazing, this new earth, is going to be because God has some people who can rule it in a way that makes it perfect. And that's what He's trying to prepare us to do. Get connected with your team. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. 
you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowblooms.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.